Well, brothers and sisters, God has always been pleased in, in history to use seemingly inauspicious, feeble, weak, feeble, uh, frail instruments in the accomplishing of his purposes. It was true then, in the days of Samuel, it is true now, in our own day, and it will remain true for the rest of our lives as long as this world endures. It is one of those great hallmarks of God's acting in this world that he uses what seems weak to accomplish great things. I think ultimately it is all meant to point us to, to that great climax of history when our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. We read in, one, uh, in John, in the Gospel of John, we read that all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life of, uh, was the light of man. And th this is the point. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some modern translations, I think, rightly uh, translated here that the darkness was not able to quench the flame. The darkness was not able to smother the, the light that was shining. And how dark was the world in the days of our Lord Jesus? When, our, when the Word came upon it, when the Word was made flesh, darkness was dominant. And God, in His time, sent forth His Son born of a virgin, born of a woman, to shine the light of his love to a fallen humanity. Think about it. Think about that boy laying in the manger, that baby, the light of the world, the instrument that God was going, going to use to overturn the darkness that was in the world to scatter the darkness that surrounded it. Surrounded it. What a terrific moment in history. God coming into the world in the likeness of the most defenseless, most weak, most feeble, the mildest of all creatures, a human baby. You see animals in the, in the, in the wild when they're at the moment of their birth, yes, they're defenseless, but they know how to walk. They know they, they do some. Uh, but here, baby, defenseless. It is how God acts in this world. Our Lord Jesus, in his ministry, he reminded the disciples, and it is inscripturated for us, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Nothing to write home about but that the mustard seed grows into a mighty tree into a large tree and as the kingdom of God begins inconspicuously we know that even though there is a lot of darkness at least it has begun what I'm trying to remind us right at the start here is that although God is seemingly quiet at times in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, in the, in the days of our Lord, the 400 years of silence that existed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
in our day, that although God is seemingly quiet, that does not mean that God is not at work. It just means that for a season there is this mustard seed. It's very small. There is this small light shining. That does not mean that God is not doing his work. In the restaurant business, we, we used to call prepping uh, the mise en place. The mise en place is when you cut, you chop, you weigh down all, uh, and you peel and you slice all the, all the ingredients. You put your pans all together and, and you set up everything nicely so that when the, the, the service time comes, you, you have everything ready. You, you're, you're doing the mise en place. It's a French word. Uh, you can call it also uh, prep work or prepping. And if you were to pass any restaurant, if you were to pass the restaurant where I used to work in Marlebone Road, um, if you were to pass it uh, in, the, in the early hours of the morning and look inside, it would be quiet. It would be dark. The lights are off. There, there's no service happening. It, it would seem like nothing is really happening. But if you would go into the, into the back, to the kitchen, you would see the lights on, you would see the chefs and the sous-chefs busily at work, prepping. It is something like this that the Lord does in our day. It is something like this that we see. The Lord often works in the background often is working in this mise-en-place kind of way, putting things in place. You might not see it, but he is setting up, his, uh, he, he's setting up himself to do the work that he intends to do. He was true in the days when the judges ruled. It is still true today. That's what we see here in 2 Samuel. It might seem, as you look at this, and even as you translate it to our own day, it might seem that the, the enemy is winning. The church is small. The light is so, so faint. It's just glimmers. It might seem that darkness is prevailing, even gaining ground. That the light is uh, being smothered and, 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 and is burning out. But that does not mean that God is not at work. Oftentimes, or all the times, it's just a prelude to seeing God's wonderful work in history. It is true. It was true here. It was true in the, in the days, in the climax of history when our Lord came into the world. It was true in, in the Reformation. It was true in 18th century England when, when, when corruption was all around. And then God sends a John Wesley and God sends a George Whitfield and God sends, sends a, a Daniel Rowland. And all of a, all of a sudden those slow, small glimmers turn out to be a, a wonderful working of God's grace. The wickedness of Eli's sons, here we see, yes, it might seem that the enemy is winning. That the enemy, as Isaiah says, is coming in like a flood. But in Samuel, this ongoing pattern of contrast that is happening here, we see that the Spirit of God is lifting up a banner. It might be small. It is small indeed. It's just an infant. It's just a, a young boy, Samuel. But in due time... This young infant is the force through which God will bring about his purposes and he and the light will prevail. So in this chapter, we see this contrast, darkness and light. 
glimmers or not even light, just full-blown full blown darkness and just glimmers of light. But that's, but that's for us to be reminded, yes, of course, of the wickedness, uh, of the dangers of wickedness and godlessness in, 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 in religion. Yes, that is one of the points of application. That is one of the goals of this passage. But it is primarily, as we see the wickedness of the sons of Eli being contrasted with, with this young boy growing in, in stature uh, and, and, and in favor both with the Lord and man, uh, is meant for us to be reminded God is at work. And you would suppose, this is the first point, you would suppose that as God is at work, as God is going to work himself into the history of the nation of Israel by giving them a king, as God is coming, uh, after we just read the, the wonderful prayer of Anna that talks about the reversal and the overturning of, of circumstances, you would suppose that as God is going to work himself into the history of Israel, that God would come and deal, the first item in the agenda was for God to come and deal with those pesky Philistines, those pesky neighbors that they had, those troublesome neighbors. Wasn't the Anna's prayer speaking about smiling at the enemies and all of that? One would expect to start seeing it come about right now, wouldn't you? Well, yes. But it is not in the way that you're thinking of, if that's how you're thinking. You see, the judgment element that the enemies of God would be overturned, similar to our Lord Jesus' day, is slightly more nuanced. Because the enemies of God, yes, they lie in the nations in the days of Samuel, but they're also enemies within the household. And that's what God is going to deal with first, like in the days of our Lord Jesus, the cleansing of the temple. Here's the cleansing of the temple at Shiloh. You might think that the main problem at the time was the conquest of the land, but you'd be wrong. There is a temple to be cleansed. Judgment needs to start with the household of God. And our attention immediately after, after Anna's prayer is turned to the wickedness of the sons of Eli. Their scandalous behavior. There are many dark pictures throughout the Old Testament of, of the people of God acting badly. Idolatry, fornication, lust, treachery, bloodshed. There are many dark and awful pictures in the Old Testament of the people of God behaving badly. But I would suggest that this is perhaps one of the worst. Because not only is it is members of the nation that have been grossly wicked, but in this case, it is the, the, the priestly class, the salt losing its savor. The ones that were supposed to keep in check the members of the nation are the ones that are sinning grossly and wickedly and in fact leading others to sin. The ones that were supposed to be the defenders of the purity of the, of the worship in the Old Testament, to be God's guards of the temple, are the instruments in Satan's hands. Worship, in these days, 
has become a farce in Israel at Shiloh. And we're left too little to imagine because the, the, the narrator under the inspiration of the Spirit tells us right at the start, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. This is about as condemning as you, uh, of an introduction that you can have. They were corrupt. Literally, in, in Hebrew, they were the sons of Belial, which, which also casts our minds back to what uh, Eli said to Hannah earlier in the, in, the, in the temple at Shiloh that implied that she was a daughter of Belial. It's the same word here that, it, that you see in chapter 1 um, in verse um, I'll tell you the verse, verse 16. It's the same word there for well, just about the same terminology. One is a man, a woman. Uh, it's the same terminology that you see in verse 16 for wicked woman. They were wicked. They were corrupt. They were destructive. They were the, and they were ignorant. Not just ignorant of some things, but ignorant of the worst kind. They did not know the Lord. Which... <laughs> If you know your scripture, in fact, we were considering that yesterday, the knowledge of the Lord increasing in it. They did not know the Lord. It's tantamount to saying they were not saved. They had no relationship with the Lord. They had uh, an outward obedience to uh, or seemingly uh, acquiescence to, to, the, to, the, to this idea of God. But they were spiritually un ignorant. They uh, were unconverted. That's why they did not care for anything to do with this uh, out-of-fashion word called holiness. And the two main vices, and here again, I'm not going to go verse by verse because it's a bigger passage. The two main vices, the two main sins that we see Ophni and Phineas being marked with are two vices of the lowest nature. Two of the worst. You cannot really think of... of Things as bad as greed and lasciviousness. They were greedy. They thought only of themselves. They took of the offerings that, uh, that devout men were bringing to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And they were lascivious. They were fornicators. They were seducing the very women who were coming to uh, to the temple expecting to come into the Lord's presence, they were deceiving them. So they were shameless. They were in their actions. I'm not going to go into the details here, but the, the idea here is that they were taking more than there was, there was their fair share. The idea here is that they were taking things that were not meant for them to take. The Lord had provided for the priestly class. Although the Levites did not, were, did not receive an inheritance, on the, in the law of God, there was provision made for the Levites to be given out of the, the meat given as a sacrifice for their sustenance. But there was rules and regulations that they did not want to know about. They wanted the best cuts. They wanted to have this kind of potluck, just stab it and bring it out. And if someone complains and says, that is not right for you to do, just... Tell them, you're going to suffer if you, if you come against me. I will take it by force. There are two things in, the, in the God's word that God reveals 
as provoking him to intense anger. One is godlessness and the other is wickedness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all God, uh, ungodliness and wickedness, Paul says to the Romans. And this is what they had were. They were godless and they were wicked. They were godless because their attitudes demonstrated that they have no regard for God. And they were wicked. Wickedness usually uh, conveys a sense of behaviors to one, towards one another. And they were wicked in the way that they handled and dealt with their fellow men. They disregarded God. What a sad picture is presented to us. But not as a second point, but as a, a contrast. Let us just, as a, uh, an aside, let us look at the contrast. By contrast to what uh, Ophni and Phineas, Eli's sons, are being presented at, as, we find that Samuel is presented as one who is growing in spirituality. Verse 11, the second part says, But the child ministered to the Lord before Eli. And Eli's sons, as Eli's sons were, were busy exploring, uh, exploiting their sacred positions, you read in verse 18 of chapter 2, that Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod, In the middle of this liturgical, you could, you could divide it like this. There is liturgical sins by Ophni and Phineas, and there is moral sins by Ophni and Phineas. And in the middle of this, we are being told time and time again that the Lord is at work. They are short notes. They are not meant to, to shine a, a, a very bright light. They are meant just to be glimmers to remind that God is indeed at work. Look at, look at the contrast. Verse 11, Samuel serves. From verse 12 to verse 17, we find the, the liturgical sins of, of Ophni and Phineas. And then you get to verse 18 to verse 21. Again, we find Samuel serving. And then verse 22 to verse 25, uh, uh, Eli goes and rebukes his sons. We will look at it in a minute. But we find the moral sins. And then verse 26. Again, another glimmer. And the child, Samuel, grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And then there is the prophecy of judgment that we will consider as well. And then you turn to verse three, verse one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the first part. After all of this, again, we're reminded... Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Why do you think that is? Very weird way of just putting these things here. They are silent witnesses of God's provision. We're meant to see them, to know that in spite of all of this, God is at work. And Samuel is here being contrasted. The infant that was chosen of God is here being contrasted with the wickedness that was happening in Shiloh. But Samuel is not only contrasted with the wicked sons of Eli, that's the second point, Samuel is also contrasted with, with Eli himself. If you look to verse 21, you find that 
Uh, it says the Lord visited uh, so that she conceived and bore three sons, two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And then verse 22, and I think this is meant for us to see. Uh, now, Eli was very old. So you have a young boy here. You have an old, very old man there. And the contrast is meant to be seen. And I, I, I do feel for Eli. As we consider how Eli dealt with, with this situation, let me just say, I do feel for him. He comes across, as you read uh, through these first two chapters, he comes across as someone who was well-intentioned. He, he is not ill-intentioned. He is well-meaning. Perhaps even you could argue that he is personally godly. There is, there is something there. I don't think the, the text uh, casts uh, a bad light on, on, on Eli's spirituality. But Eli comes across, as you read through this, as a poor, depraved, uh, not depraved, a poor spiritual leader, as a, in a, as a failure as a parent. It is sad to see, isn't it? From verse uh, 22 to 25, you find that Eli is doing something about it, but it's very short. And it's very, very, very little. He speaks against his sons, but he falls short of doing anything about it. He knew about it. Good, good. Apparently everyone in Shiloh knew about it, what was happening. They were so depraved that they didn't even bother to hide it. They knew they could get away with it. And why that is, he knew about it. Eli knew about it. He even rightly identified it. The things he said were right. That it was a sin, yes, against the people as well. But, but it, it is against God. And it is not a good report. You're, you're making the Lord's people transgress. You're sinning. It's causing the people to sin. But yet he did nothing about it, did he? When he came to doing something, when he came to action, apparently he simply was content. I said what I needed to say. My work is done. You might excuse him, even perhaps, by saying that he was old, frail by now. But that, that is not an appropriate excuse, is it? Was he not the one that should have educated them, their, the sons, in the ways of the Lord? I might be going out on a limb here, but it seems to me that Eli did a lot of sparing of the rod on his children in, his, in their upbringing. We can easily see that pattern, can't we? His first error was in failing to supervise their priestly service. He, he knew about it, but from hearing, he wasn't there, present, and that was his duty, to be there, on the spot. He only came later to discuss it with them. And another error, perhaps greater, no, certainly greater, was that his rebuke did not lead to immediate punishment. According to the Bible, the failure to discipline our children is the surest way of ruining their souls. He, know, he, he doesn't do anything about it. 
Of course, they are grown now. They have children. One of them, uh, one, the wife of one of them is expecting, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Um, they're probably in their 50s, if we assume that Eli is in his 80s. Um, so they're grown up. They're not young men by any stretch. But even if he couldn't do anything, at least he had an obligation upon hearing of this report to remove them from office. It is his role, it is his duty as the high priest to, to, to keep and guard the temple. You remember what happened to Aaron's sons, don't you? Nadab and Abihu. They brought strange fire into the presence of the Lord and they were consumed. And they were, and they were how much more, and they were struck dead, how much more atrocious were the sins of Ophni and Phineas? But Eli couldn't just bring himself, could he? He, could just, he couldn't just bring himself to be too harsh on his kids. A tale as old as time. Oh, they're good lads on the inside. They're, they're, they're really good lads, you know. Perhaps Eli would have said to you. Seems to me, again... Going out on a limb, assuming a little here, seems to me that Eli was not really concerned about the worship and the honor of God, that Eli was concerned about appearances. That's what I suggest is happening here. He wanted this to stop so that it wouldn't reflect badly on him. How sad. Sin begets sin. Especially when the, we're talking of those in authority. The pulpit, I would say, begets sin in the pew. Look at verse 24 before we move on to the next point. Eli says that because of their sin, they're making the Lord's people transgress. Their lack of holiness is demonstrating itself and, and encouraging others to be less holy. But let me... Before I move on to the next point, let me just address this. What should have the, we read here that they nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Verse uh, 25, because let, let me just address this. What should they have done? They did not listen to the voice of their father. But few things in life are more needful and more vital for children. Speaking to children here than having humility and, and receiving parental correction. It's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land. It teaches us, doesn't it? Had Phineas and Ophni, Ophni uh, heathed, what their father was saying to them might have been a different outcome. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Let's move on to the third point. And again, I said that there were glimmers of hope in the contrast here, but there is another glimmer of hope in this passage. That's why I, I say glimmers in the, in, the, in the plural. Because in verse 27, you find that there is a man of God who comes 
and speaks to Eli. Who he is, we don't know. Where he came from, we are not told. We absolutely know nothing about him. I don't think there is even inclinations on the part of the most audacious of commentators to try and, and, find, uh, and, and, and hazard a guess. We're just told he's a man of God. In the middle of this whole dark situation, in the midst, in the midst of this dark uh, uh, circumstance, as the worship of God is a farce at Shiloh, there is still a one that the Lord is pleased to use at this time. I'm reminded of those words of John Knox, the Scottish reformer. He said that a man, he found himself in very much a similar situation, uh, almost alone like Elijah. John Knox said that the man with God on his side is always in the majority. Or is, is it um, Athanasius? Athanasius was a church father. And to make a long story very, very short, he found himself on the wrong side of the majority of Christians. He dared to believe that uh, at this particular point in the history of the church, that, that God, that Christ was God is God. And someone, a friend, came to him and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius says, well, it, is, it will be Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius then against the world. Why? Because he knew that he had God on his side. And that God blessed him. And God honored him in this. So, what about this Rebuke, uh, or, no, or what about this prophecy uh, by the man of God that we can look at? I think there, is, there are three parts. The first is a rehearsal of grace, verse 27 to verse 28. If we want to divide this, this up, there is a rehearsal of what God has done. Then there is the, the, the accusation, the main accusation, if, it, if this was... Uh, a courtroom, this would be the, what he's being judged upon in verse 29. If you would read there, uh, verse 29, it says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice? This is the acquisition and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place. And honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all offerings of Israel, my people. And then there is the announcement of judgment. And that goes from verse 30 all the way towards the end. And I'm going to be very brief here, although there, there would be certainly some, uh, a few things that we would consider. Just notice how the in, in, indictment, perhaps that's the word here, the indictment of verse 29 comes after a rehearsal of what God had done for him and for the people. You see, grace always makes sin even more foul-smelling. Those that have been given so much grace, when they fall into sin, when they, when they hurt uh, so much, when they've been blessed so much, to sin after that, it is the worst and the most awful of, of sinning. So you see, in this passage, we are being told that 
Eli's sin was that he honored his sons more than God. His boys. They're my boys. My, they're blood of my blood. Yes, he may verbally reprove them. But he's, he doesn't want to be a, too offensive. He doesn't want to be too harsh on them. He had this kind of, I'll, I'll say a little bit more in a moment, but he had this kind of sweet reasonableness that we lull ourselves into, into especially in the, in, in the West. And if, I hope you don't mind me saying, especially in British culture. This, you don't want to be too offensive. So you, you'd rather not say something, lest you would hurt someone's feelings. Is that an unfair statement to make about how we have our society? I'm, I'm not saying that, we, that, that my culture in Portugal was better. It's the same thing. It's just British is just above and beyond. I think it, that Britishness of you don't really want to say something that is offensive, although it is true. Perhaps this was something of it. That's the sin, sin someone called it, of sweet reason, reasonableness. But I'll say a little bit more when we come to, the, to it. In the judgment part, we are told, God is going to remove him. You're done. And again, you might ask, just very briefly, you might ask, why? Why is Eli bearing the judgment and the punishment when it's the sons that have committed the sin? Why? Because Eli bears the responsibility as a dad, as a parent. That is what, what, what is going on here. You might think, okay, so off nine and five years, they're, they're wicked, they're done with, judgment should come on their house. No, actually, the sin started before that. The sin started in how Eli raised up his children. And God is going to remove him. And we'll see that as we go through Samuel. Eventually this prophecy is fulfilled in the days of Solomon as Zadok, the, the high priest, uh, comes uh, to, is restored to the, to the priesthood. So conclusion. I'm going to try and I have seven minutes and I'm going to try to go through seven points as our brother John Saunders yesterday said it's very puritanical I have seven points of application of different lengths but as we look through this what does this teach us how do we apply this in our own lives first of all that holiness is necessary Robert Murray McChaney said that holiness is the greatest need, or my people's greatest need is my personal holiness, especially holiness in positions of authority. The gross failure of Eli's sons reminds us that those that are in authority in the church need to live holy lives. And they should be held to account. And that we should be held to account. How easy it is, and how often we see it today. Preachers using their ministries primarily for personal gain, employing world approaches in order to attract large, large crowds, 
All of it is kind of the same thing that we see here. Uh, usurpation of, of God's worship for our own personal gains. You employ, you employ entertainment and worldly approaches to draw uh, large crowds. Some, some of them want to sizable offerings. and So they seek their glory instead of the glory of God. It is necessary for us to consider this. Number two. Serving the Lord where he has placed us. I'm thinking about Samuel. And I think Samuel is a wonderful example to all of us. We all should be encouraged by his sincere faith, his godliness, his walk with the Lord. He reminds us, as little Samuel is there, he doesn't know what the Lord is about to do. He doesn't know how the Lord is directing, but it reminds us all that wherever the Lord has placed us, that we too should expect to be used of the Lord, to shine the light in the darkness. Even in, in this, Samuel wasn't doing anything great, brave, or, or magnificent at this time. He was just doing what the Lord had called him to do. And we can serve the Lord in, a, in this kind of honest ministry of doing what the Lord has called us to do, wherever the Lord has planted us. Number three, there is something here about parenting that needs to be addressed as well. Another striking contrast. This is a chapter all about contrast. You have the contrast of Eli's sons and, and Anna's Son, you have the contrast between uh, Samuel, young man, and, and Eli, an old man. Another contrast that you see in the book of Samuel is one between Anna's actions and Eli's actions. Someone prayed yesterday in the prayer meeting about how, how thankful they were about how Hannah gives a, a godly example of, how, of what a mother should be. I would say what a mother and a father should be of godly parenting. Uh, in the same vein, Eli gives us a, a stark, contrasting, cautionary tale of what bad parenting looks like. Ray Comfort, he wrote a book on how to bring children to Christ, how to raise children. Um, and he says, if we want to raise godly children, the best way to achieve this is to be godly parents. But Eli failed to do this. this. This is where Anna thrived. Even in the midst of anguish, she loved the Lord. She, even when it seemed like the Lord had forgotten her, she knew that he didn't. And here Eli, seeking to honor his sons more than the Lord. I wonder... Again, because I don't think Eli is presented to us as a completely godless man, just a man that failed. I wonder how many nights Eli must have spent sleepless thinking about the mistakes he made in raising up his children. The thoughts that went through his head. And the question I ask myself, and I know most of you are parents uh, uh, in which your children have long... Uh, left the home, but I wonder my, to myself, when my children are all grown and, and gone, what are the things that 
I would have done differently? What are the things that I will regret having done? Will we wander? About how we dealt with them? Will we question priorities? The problem is, as many of you will say, that once your children are all grown, grown, it's too late by then. Praise God, it is not too late. That's, this is what I would say at this moment as well. It is not too late because we can still redeem time as Christians. We can pray that the Lord would save our children. But it is something for us to consider. Number four, the, the, that sin that we were talking about just now, that, that sweet uh, agreeability, that, 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 that sin that, that seeks not to be offensive. That is a, a most pervasive sin that has come into the church, isn't it? This prophecy of Eli emphasizes that you can end up in the grave sin of not saying stuff just because you don't want to, to be offensive. This prophecy against Eli emphasizes that niceness doesn't necessarily, or love, true love is a love that tells people what they need to hear. We're not necessarily seeking God's honor just because we're trying to spare people of their feelings. If you love someone, you love them enough to tell them what they need to hear. And that's the problem that Eli went through here. He did not love his children enough to tell them. He did not love his Lord enough. As I said before, we... Number five would be the what I've been emphasizing up until now, but let me emphasize it just briefly, that God is at work even in the darkest of circumstances. I had a few examples here. I'm going to refrain from using them for the sake of time. But God was, was at work in those days, days. God was at work in the days of our Lord Jesus when, when the Word became flesh. God was at work in the Reformation. God was at work in 18th century Britain when he sent George Whitfield, Dan, Daniel Rowlands, Grimshaws. You know, J.C. Riley wrote a book, a uh, wonderful book. He says uh, that he kind of gives a spiritual overview of what England looked like uh, in the beginning of the 18th century. And it's a dire and dark report. You might think that we are in a very ma uh, bad situation right now. And we are. Where people are disinterested from the things of God. But in those days, people were just as disinterested. It seemed like darkness was winning. But God sent this man, that man, this boy, that boy, this woman, that woman. And the Lord overturned it. And isn't that the the picture of our Lord Jesus. 
For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. All the darkness in the day, in, in, in the first century, all the godlessness. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And that is the contrast, number six, of this chapter, of this passage the contrast between grace and judgment. Yes, there is a lot of judgment. There is a lot of darkness. There is a lot of wickedness. But God says judgment is coming. And with judgment, we can expect mercy as well. With judgment, we can expect to see God at work in bringing mercy as well. And that's what we see. Judgment for Eli and for the house means that God is visiting the nation with mercy through Samuel. Look at what happened to the house of, 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 of Eli, Ophni and Phineas, dead. The guy, the, the, the guy that was stealing the food just so that they could enlarge themselves in their greed. What, what was it that Hannah prayed about just in the previous section? That those who were hungry, they were filled, and those that were, they had a lot, they were, they were pleading for food. Isn't that what Hannah was praying for? That those who were mighty are broken. That those who were proud, their mouths would be stopped. That those who had a lot. Hire themselves out for bread, that those who are full are now pleading for food because of their sin. In all of this, we see God's mercy in overturning what is wrong. Finally, the determining factor of where we find ourselves in this is one that is, is a rule eternal in, the, in this world. It is in verse, it is in verse, if I could find it now, I can write, write it down, where God says that, oh, here it is, verse 30. The Lord says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall lightly be esteemed. Those who spurn at me, those who shun me will be despised. What is it about you? Do you seek to honor the Lord? Or are you despising the Lord? Because the Lord will not be despised. He will be honored. He's, uh, he's always done this. He for a season might seem like he allows people to despise him. But if not earlier, at judgment, he will separate the sheep from the goats, those who honored, particularly the son, particularly the son, or those who spurned at him. 
those who accepted the one begotten son, the one who came into the world, the son given, the small defenseless child, those who received him or those who rejected him. Which one are you? May the Lord bless us. May the Lord keep us.